Welcome to Hustle and Pro Season 2, talking sports in Frisco from youth to pro. Now here's your host, Kelly Walker. Welcome to this episode of Hustle and Pro. Thanks for joining us. So we are wrapping up our conversation on The Last Dance. We've got a new, a new guest with us today to give his perspective. So Malcolm Farmer, the president and general manager of the Texas Legends, is with us today via Zoom. Thanks for hopping on, Malcolm. Anytime, Kelly. We're excited to jump into this and uh, talk some last dance. Yeah, so you've got to fill Chad Brown's shoes. He's given us his perspective the last few episodes. That's funny, literally fill Chad Brown's shoes. He's got some big shoes, so I don't know if I can do that, but look, I'll, I'll do what I can here to provide some value. Fantastic, and we also have Fred Hammond. He's back again for the third episode in this series to chat with us. So let's jump in. We've got a lot to cover because we're going to wrap up episode six through 10 here in the next several minutes. So in episode six, um, we, we really dive into Jordan's gambling. So um, they talked to us about him going to Atlantic City, I think it was, um, before a game two of an Eastern Conference Finals. Um, and they lost that game. And they, they talked to his teammates and everybody about how that affected them. And then he comes back, and of course, what do you, nothing less you'd expect for game, the next few games, that he's back better than ever for those games. Um, so you guys probably, we all knew about Jordan's gambling before this, but did this, did this shed any new light on anything or give you a different perspective seeing it on, on the show? It gave me a perspective of uh, how it, it the, the media reports and the, uh, the accusations, if you will, that, that Michael Jordan took, actually, I think, really brought that team closer together. Um, they kind of, you know, use it as a rallying cry um, quite a bit. And if I recall correctly, they had lost the first two games of that series. Um, and if I recall correctly, they won the next four. Um, so if anything, it may have worked against uh, the Knicks and, and their hopes of uh, finally advancing to, to finally defeating uh, MJ. Yep, and that kind of feeds into this next topic they show us. So we talked about a lot about confidence and, and the just insane level of confidence that Jordan had to pull off some of the things that he was able to, to walk the walk. So they um, really detail the finals versus Suns with um, Charles Barkley even saying that he played the best that he could and he just flat out couldn't, couldn't beat Jordan. Um, but they show us the series when the Bulls go up 2-0 and then – the Suns got game three, and I think it was a three overtime, triple overtime. Um, and then the Bulls come back, and then the Suns come back, and all this. So it was back and forth. And um, MJ talked about how he only packed one suit. Like, he's not going to play more than another game there, right? He's, uh, he's playing one, they're going to win, and they're going to come home. I loved that. I thought that was really interesting to, to really see that confidence. I don't know in this day and age if that's how it works anymore who packs what for who and what they take on road trips. But, um, but what do you guys think about that level of confidence knowing like we're not, we're not staying there for two games, right? Yeah. The thing with Michael Jordan is he always backed it up. He'd make the comments. He was serious. I think the teammates took note that Michael's serious right now. We all have to play to the level of one suit performance or else uh, it's going to be unpleasant. But again, as Michael always did, he backed it up and they win and, he only needed one suit and went home with the championship. Yeah, no question. It's, it's something that you, you hear occasionally during the NBA playoffs now, even today, of, of a players packing one suit. Um, Pat Riley has is, is been quoted with that a few times. And, um, you know, I, I think that one of the unique things is you can kind of tell when 
it's a, a player or a coach just talking. Um, they're saying it, you know, and with Michael Jordan, I think that um, be it because of fear um, or be it because of the respect that his teammates had for him or be it because they knew how serious he was, I, I don't think it was ever perceived as just talk. You know, when, when he says, said that, I, I took it as uh, his teammates would be like, okay, if, that's, if, if we don't have that same mentality, um, not only might we lose, but even worse than that, you know, Michael Jordan may be coming after us. Yeah, like, uh, like it was so a command, it, more of a command. a reality to them very quickly of we're going to bring everything we have into game six. Yeah. Okay, and I I said Charles Barkley in there, and I love Charles Barkley. I, I, I think it's really interesting that, that he flat out just said, you know, kind of at that moment of admitting, like, he was just better than me or us as a team, uh, which is hard. I feel, I feel bad for Charles Barkley over the years, but I love him all the same. I okay. think you feel bad for Charles Barkley. He's doing just fine. I know he's doing just <laughs> fine. I just, he's a lovable guy, and I don't know. But that's part of what makes Charles Charles his authenticity. He says what he really feels. He's not putting on airs for anyone. Right. I mean, that's just what he does. Right. That's his chick. Okay. I know that was a quick episode six, but I'm excited to jump into seven. I think seven, eight, and nine, like these are some of the best moments of this whole series. So, um, I feel like episode seven was kind of the the, the father, the dad episode. Um, they really explain how Michael loses his father in 93, his father, James. Um, like personally, just so y'all know, this was, this was really big for me. Um, I lost my dad uh, June of 93. So to, to watch all this backwards, you know, looking at these dates and just like reliving these moments um, for me personally was really interesting connection to watch during this. Um, and my dad was also my sports guy. Like he was my coach. He was the person that taught me everything about softball and baseball and watching sports on TV and all these other things and coached us. So this was um, a really important episode to me. We see a lot of tearful moments um, from, from coaches and teammates um, about his dad, you know, being at every game and bringing kids down to meet Michael from the nosebleeds and really cool moments like that. Um, so I'm curious, in your opinions, how much credit should we give James for shaping the player that Michael turned out to be? I think any father, any parent, mother or father, can never get enough credit for the work they've done. Um, and that's, that's irrespective of Michael Jordan and James Jordan. Um, I think that any parent, the sacrifices that they make are unbeknownst to a child or a young man. Um, I don't think that I think it'd be impossible to uh, give James Jordan um, too much credit. Right. To overstate it's, the importance of what. Right. Yeah. Just to jump in on what you were saying there about your your own parents there, Kelly. I think that and, and the Charles Barkley, you know, Fred's comment about his authenticity. I think that Michael Jordan, um, you know, at times came across as very corporate. Right. There was an image. Um, and that image transcended all boundaries. But I felt like watching this in hindsight um, and knowing that he had failed in 95 to come back and win, um, to watch in 96, the, it made him more authentic. It made him more real um, to be watching this and see what he went through um, in terms of you know, his father's passing, uh, winning the championship on Father's Day, um, 
and to see his response to having lost the previous year. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I thought that it made it gave him a level of authenticity that um, Michael Jordan didn't always have because of the image uh, that he constantly upheld. Right. Yeah, there was a moment when they talk about, I think it was Michael's telling this story, it could have been the mom, about um, him getting in, maybe starting to go down the wrong path since, as a teenager. And his dad basically sat him down and gave him an ultimatum. Like, this is, uh, he said, you can do mischievous stuff or you can do sports, you choose. And so that's what Michael, I think, said, that was it. Like, that's what I needed to hear to make my decision. And then it was like never looking back after that. Yeah, and I mean, that's what dads do is they guide their sons and cheer them on, but discipline them when they need to. And um, that was a tipping point for him. If that wouldn't have been present, who knows if we even know who Michael Jordan was or is. Yeah, do you think it's fair to say um, that the death of his father, like, took the, the passion out enough right then and there that it, it forced him into the retirement? Or do you think there were so many other factors at play? Like, what do, you, do you think that was a huge factor for him, the, the one factor? I think it was a combination of a number of things. I mean, so much pressure, so much scrutiny, so much um, you're going to have to do it again and again and again. Then dad dies, and it's just I need a break psychologically. I can't continue at this intensity. And I think that was probably what it would be, or, or that's my perception of it. Uh, it may have been the straw that broke the camel's back, but there was an awful lot there prior to that that was pushing him towards baseball and, and towards – trying something new, you know, and, you know, I, Dick Bennett is a longtime college basketball coach. He's got a, he made a speech once and he basically said that everyone's got a fire inside of them. They've all got a, a passion and a fire. And when you open up that furnace door, what happens is, is your fire goes out to everybody else. And that's good because everyone can take from that and have that passion, but it lessens the fire in you. And so I feel like the fire had been, the door had been opened to the furnace in Michael Jordan for too long and he didn't have the same fire left and he had to go somewhere to to rekindle that yeah the same level of fire yeah okay so so then baseball which is um I love this part of the story even though a lot of kind of haters now look back and like joke right but so he hadn't played organized baseball in 14 years and goes out and and gets gets to a level that some people can never even get to when baseball is their single focus sport their whole life. So it really wasn't a bad effort at all. Um, and I, and I wanted to note that um, Terry Francona even said that he would have made his way to the majors. It was just a matter of time. So it was just a, a, the clock that really stopped his um, trajectory in baseball. Do you guys, what do you, how do you guys look at his, his stint in, in baseball? I think it's remarkable to go from NBA basketball player not playing baseball for 14 years in one of the hardest sports of all time to hit a fastball, curveball, all these different things, not to mention the fielding part. To make that transition just shows what an incredible athlete he was or is. I think it just shows his, uh, his work ethic. And a lot of people can you know display that work ethic on the way up. Um, and, and they lose it some once, they're, uh, once they've arrived, so to speak. And, and Michael Jordan had that work ethic. Uh, at the beginning, and then he was willing to start all over again and, and embrace it all the same. All right, let's move on to episode eight, unless there's something else you guys know you want to hit on in seven. There are actually a few other things that happen in seven, but we're going to circle back to them because they kind of tie in everything here in a second. Um, so episode eight, um, we, we see a lot of examples um, that we've seen throughout the whole series of sort of that 
that trigger effect when somebody just says or looks at, at you the wrong way and Michael takes that as his, going back to your Malcolm, your um, example, his fuel to just turn it on and kind of destroy them. So we see like BJ Armstrong, um, that Michael destroyed the Hornets after BJ kind of got under his skin. And um, I had to look this one up. I forgot this one, but LeBradford Smith. So he scored 37 points and Michael had said that he, after the game, he said, nice game, Mike. That was it. And then it, it made him mad enough to where after that, the next night he goes and scores 36 in the first half. And then he comes back later and admits that he made that up and that no, he didn't ever even say anything to him. It's just kind of like he made up his own fuel, right? Um, we saw it with Gary Payton um, when, when he says that he got to Jordan um, in the 96 finals. And then I love when Jordan gets to see those on the iPad or whatever they were handing him on the last dance and him getting to react to it. Did you guys love seeing those reactions as much as I did? Absolutely. Yeah. That's part of the whole thing. Of seeing what he thought, like if he saw a clip for the first time, like this Gary Payton example, right? Getting to just see his actual reaction. And it was always the same thing. It's just like, that's what I do. And like, it's almost his kill. I'm just look at that kill I made and look at that kill I made. And just a, a guy that was obsessed with destroying and winning at all costs. Yeah. And they also talked about George, George Carl, um, the Sonics coach walking past him at dinner and how Michael was like so offended that he didn't say anything. And, and now it's like, I don't know who knows what really happened. Cause he's, you know, admitted that he makes some of this stuff up, but, but Malcolm, I'm curious from your perspective, like, I mean, is that, is that real stuff that really like there's that much drama, a, a, a glance at dinner or a single word or comment that to these players from a coach or somebody in the front office that can really set somebody off that bad? To certain individuals, uh, the answer is undoubtedly yes. Um, people, certain individuals will look for every single edge possible, even the ones that they make up themselves. And yes, it can, it can drive a player, it can drive anybody in, in, in any number of careers. It can drive them um, to new heights. Um, so yeah, <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> okay, so there's some controversy in something we hear Steve Kerr say in this episode. He said that the 95-96 Bulls was the best team that he's ever been a part of. So the, the Twitterverse kind of went crazy after seeing this because it's like, what about, what about the Warriors? And, um, you know, does he mean as a player? Does he mean as a coach and all this? So do you guys have any, any thoughts on that comment from Steve Kerr? Well, it's interesting. Steve coached the team that beat him in terms of victory. So, I mean, he has a firsthand perspective of both sides of it. But when you think of that Bulls team, it had it all. It had role players that came off the bench and did exactly what they needed to do. It had the greatest basketball player in the world. It had motivation from, you know, Michael Jordan's leadership. And it just, to me, uh, you had it all on that team. Whereas Golden State, I don't know, it's a different style of basketball than that team was. It was, to me, that team was more of a basketball team than a, a three-point shooting team like the Golden State Warriors were. So you know, my, my viewpoint is that it was the Bulls, not the Warriors. But that's controversial. I think Steve Kerr knows that it don't mean a thing without the ring. I think he knows. And, and that team that won more games, they didn't win. At the end of the day, they didn't win it. And Steve Kerr knows that you got you to finish the deal. 
yeah. um, to, to have that title. And while we're on Steve Kerr, um, it kind of bounces around a few episodes, but we saw like the interaction when Michael fouled him, I think it was a practice, right? And then Kerr kind of punched him in the chest a little. And then Michael like actually punched him, like hit him. Um, and then after practice, he called to apologize. And then they were okay after that. I think Steve Kerr said they were, they were fine going forward. They had mutual respect, but it kind of needed that, that needed to happen for Michael to understand that he was going to take this role seriously. Um, I think Michael said he was, he likes to toughen up his teammates and, that was evident with Scott Burrell over and over, I think in a couple of these episodes, but, and then we also get to see the personal side of Steve Kerr's story with his, the similar story of his dad. Um, and that impact, I had, I had no idea. I, I don't know much about Steve Kerr's background. So you guys might have, but did you guys, was that news to you guys too? Or did you all know that back when it happened? Malcolm, did I was you aware, um, you know, Steve Kerr has got a, a whole lot of levels to him in a very great way. Um, so I, I've been aware of, that story for a long time and, and there are certainly some stories out there of you know the the abuse that steve took as a college player um, following the death of his dad from rival fan bases and um steve kerr's got a, a tremendous perspective on life yeah it made me um because i don't know his backstory it, it it definitely made me respect his sort of full circle journey a lot more i want to i want to dig in and learn more about him because of it I thought it was hilarious when Steve Kerr said, I was just as competitive as Jordan. I just couldn't back it up. Uh, that cracked me up. Right. Got to admit it. Okay. So jumping into episode nine, um, we see there's a lot here and, and you guys jump in if there's something you want to expand on, but we see the story of the Pacers um, kind of being one of the toughest opponents for the Bulls. Um, and we get to, to see Reggie Miller and how they locked horns a lot. And um, really for a long time. I think it, I think it went, it bounced back and forth a lot. This is where some of the times if I wasn't focusing too well on the dates, I kind of got lost in the order of things, but I mean, they were talking about spanning all the, all like 93 to 98. Um, but this is where the don't ever talk trash to black Jesus came in into play here, which um, was interesting to hear from their, their perspectives, right. And how just that rivalry lived on for so long. Are they are they still like that, or are they okay now? I couldn't tell. I would venture to say that Michael Jordan doesn't let any any grudge or any any slight ever go. I mean, I think that's one of the takeaways from the whole thing. You know, you mentioned the Pacers series, and um, I can I can remember where I was watching Game Seven, and there was you know there was real doubt. I was a Bulls fan, but there was real doubt during the course of that game that the Bulls were going to pull it off, um, and it wasn't pretty, um, but at the end of the day, they they persevered. And uh, but yeah, in terms of the Black Jesus comment and the relationships uh, amongst those guys now, I mean, I, I would venture to say that Michael Jordan doesn't. He, I'm sure he's sociable. He, he's nice, but I'm sure you see it when he had over that iPad. Um, he doesn't let any of it go. <laughs> so. Yeah, still, I don't think he had. I don't think these are all his besties now. <laughs> like the Carl Malone. I, uh, was in this episode too. And I've seen clips since this aired, right, of, of Carl Malone's opinions on some of some of the things that he saw. Um, but they all, did you want to say anything about Carl Malone or Reggie Miller? No, I was just going to say, I think Reggie Miller was one player that truly didn't fear Michael Jordan. He was a gunner. He could miss 10 shots in a row, still take the 11th and still think he's going to make it. 
and talk trash with Jordan afterwards. He was that one guy that was just truly fearless as a basketball player. All right, Malcolm, is it, was it as weird for you to watch as it was for me to go to understand and buy that pizza delivery story in the hotel? Like, why is a trainer going, oh, it's midnight or whatever, you're hungry. How about a pizza? And let's, or, like, how weird is that? Uh, it's certainly different. Um, it'd be very different in today's, you know, NBA where, where health and nutrition is a constant focus. And, and certainly it was then as well. But it was just, it was different. And you see it as Michael Jordan is uh, puffing away on a cigar in a lot of different shots. Um, you know, there's different things that, you know, have become more, um, you know, players become more aware of. And um, it doesn't surprise me that they order pizza. Uh, having heard a lot of the other stories about that um, flu game, you know, uh, what, what you choose to believe at this point is a little bit irrelevant. I think that anybody who watched that game absolutely tell that Michael Jordan is nowhere near 100%. Um, and just there's a refusal there to leave the game in the fourth quarter. There's a refusal to give in. There's a refusal to um, accept that they're going to lose. And yeah. that's what allowed the Bulls to do what they did for, you know, six out of eight years. Pizza delivery come forward and said they did not do anything to Michael's or to that pizza, and there were not five of them delivering the pizza, and that story has been retold incorrectly. I, don't know. I just thought it was a funny little thing they added in there. I thought, well, what is happening? Um, I meant to say this when we were talking about Steve Kerr a little bit because we did see that funny moment um, just before we jump off of episode nine when Jordan says, um, I think it was a Utah game. Um, you know, he knows they're going to be double teaming me and says, I think he on the, on the sidelines during a timeout, be ready. And Steve, is, was that when Steve Carr was like, I'll be ready. I'll be ready. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I thought that was funny. Um, but there's very like few times in this whole thing that we actually, they called out this whole, like, we're going to give the ball to someone else, you know, moment. Um, and they, and so, okay, let's fast forward to episode 10, unless you'll have anything else you want to jump into with Reggie Miller or Carl Malone, anything else on, on that. Okay, so episode 10 is the last hour, 10th hour of the last dance. Um, And this one, I don't know if it's really titled one match, but that's kind of what people were referring it to because um, Jordan says, all you need is one little match to start that whole fire. And so Malcolm, I know you have the fire reference here. Um, It aligns with all that, but the symbolism, I personally like thought the symbolism to finish this series off was really incredible. How they tied this all together and, um, especially with Phil Jackson, what he did. So I want to talk about that. But um, I, I want y'all's input on, so in the 98 finals versus the Jazz, you see Jordan explain about kind of control or things that are out of his control. We all know he, he had control and was obsessive about controlling what he could in the game. But then he also talks about why would I think about missing a shot that I haven't even taken yet? So how does not worrying about things out of your control really – factor in here to someone like with this much greatness? I think that it, it is all about who Michael Jordan is. It sums it up is, um, and it's a unique gift to be able to focus 100% of your being, of your thoughts, of your heart on the positive outcome that's about to occur versus having that doubt, you know, and um, Steve Curry, I'm sure he is a, as competitive as ever, but there's no question in my mind that when, when Michael Jordan turned to him during that timeout that you referenced, 
he says, I'll be ready. I think that as much, like, yeah, I'm going to be ready. What else am I supposed to say here? Um, you know, it's a very rare athlete that has the ability to never even consider the negative possibility. And I think that's what gave Michael Jordan um, such a leg up on a ton of his, all of his peers. Um, I think that's a huge component of it. Yeah. And I think that's hard. That's easier said than done. I think a lot of us worry about things that are out of our control all the time. And what do people think about? And I think nowadays the, the, what will people react, how people react to different things is different than it was then because your audience is different now, especially for players and what they say and do and where and everything. You know what, though? I think it's easy to be a serial optimist when you're gifted like he is. He can do everything. Um, Steve Kerr couldn't. So, I mean, you can kind of think positively, but if you don't have the game, the complete ability to take over and dominate something, it's probably not as easy to think. It's like knowledge breeds confidence. The yeah. guy knew how to win. The guy knew everything. He had all the skills. So I don't want to discount the fact that he was optimistic, but he had the skills to be optimistic. Yeah. The confident goes. I could be optimistic and try to get a tryout from Malcolm. I don't think it's happening. <laughs> right. It doesn't go all, it yeah. doesn't do it all. Um, so we also see some more wheels off Rodman um, in this episode when he goes and does his wrestling stint, um, which is funny and crazy. And we see Scotty's back problems um, really like nearly crippling him in that last game. And Jordan saying, I just need you out here. I just need you as a body. I need you to be out here. Um, so there were some cool full, full circle moments when they, go through that amazing last 30 seconds um, of, of Jordan having the ball. And he said he, he knew Phil wasn't going to call a timeout. So he, he dribbled the ball down. And one of my favorite moments in this whole series was when they cut to Rodman and he's like, he's not going to pass. Right. And then they, and then Pippen says, just get the hell out of his way. Like that's their role at that time. They know what everybody on the court knows what's happening. And it was just cool. Like that was a give, give you chills moment. And then they go into the, um, that, shot with I don't know I think five seconds left where he his famous makes the shot to go up um but man was that did you guys love that as much as I did seeing that part it's a perfect ending to his career I mean that was the last memory of Michael Jordan and that's exactly how you know we'll always think of him game winner at the buzzer or not it, at the buzzer, yeah it gives me chills to this day um and you know one thing that I, I think people lose sight of is that, that final game, the score was in the 80s. And you, you, you sometimes you, there's players that are compared to Michael Jordan frequently. And nowadays those games are scored in 120, you know? The usage rate, you know, Michael Jordan was shooting the ball an insane number of times compared to the total number of shots the team took. The burden on him was frankly greater than a lot of other players out there because um, you know, the, the value of each shot when you only have fewer, you know, fewer possessions and the pace of the game is so much slower. Um, it, it, to me, it, it really drives home how great he was as a player. Um, and, you know, literally the last three plays of that deciding game six, he made all three plays. He scored the driving layup on, on Russell and then got the steal from Malone and made the pull-up jumper to win it. Did he push off Malcolm? Of course not. <laughs> I say no also. All right, Malcolm, I'm dying to hear your um, answer to this question because after the last dance wrapped, I swear for a week on the ticket, all they talked about was 
was how it all ended. So um, we see Ryan Storff talking about how he offered Phil another chance to come back. And then them just talking about the what ifs and well, everybody would have broken apart, you know, all the contract talks. Um, so, and, and even Jordan saying, you know, um, I would have signed for another year and then I would have forced Scotty to come back for another year, all the, all the what ifs. So, so how do you see that Malcolm as somebody who is in negotiations and sees the, the front office ins and outs of how, how the world works in basketball. How do you see how that ended? I think that from a dollars and cents perspective, they absolutely could have figured it out. Um, but I think that it's important to remember that Phil Jackson is a free spirit. Um, yeah. he, he had decided what he was going to do. And I, I don't think there was uh, any dollar figure that he would have said yes. I think he had decided that he was done. Um, this, this, this experience, this journey with the Bulls had run its course. And I think with that, Jordan had made it painfully clear. And I think Pippen in the same boat. If Phil Jackson's not the coach, we're out. Um, and I think that decision, Phil Jackson's decision was one that um, I don't think Ryan Storff or anybody had any chance of ever changing his mind. Yeah, but it's it also it's hard to not to wonder what, what if too. I agree with you, um, but it's also like it's hard. I can't imagine as like for Michael himself to think that you could go back and win a seventh and not get the 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 right chance, uh, you know, in the right way to do that. Asking me, do I think they would have won? Sure. Well, I can ask you that. I absolutely think they would have won number yeah. seven. Keep yeah. in mind, it was a shortened season. Um, they probably would have rested a lot of guys. They wouldn't have had necessarily the same wear and tear on a total year. Um, and, yeah, I, I think they would have won um, had they decided to come back. Yeah. But I don't, I don't like blame – personally, I don't blame Reinsdorf. I don't blame Krause. I don't blame anybody. I think that it had run its course. And Phil Jackson was the right coach for that team. There is nobody else who could have handled all those personalities, um, especially Rodman. Mm-hmm. And he had decided that yeah. it's time. This is over. Yeah. Yeah, bittersweet ending. And so I thought this series wrapped up uh, really cool with the, with, of course, Phil, Zen Phil with the coffee can, having the players write sentiments and, and in the arena, like it was so dramatic looking with the, the darkened arena and, and burning the sentiments and kind of just how it wrapped up. I thought it was amazing. Um, and we got to see a couple kind of raw moments where like when Michael showed some emotion, like the lack of, the nice guy, you know, not getting, he's not going to be ever said that he was the nice guy. Um, do you, and, and also he was quoted as saying winning and leadership have a price. I pulled people up to where they didn't want to be pulled up to. So I guess to wrap up, do you guys think it was too much? Did he, or do you, do you think he ever regrets any of his intensity and in pulling and pushing that hard? Or do you think he is a hundred percent content with how everything unfolded in his career? I think people are grateful they got to play with Michael Jordan and learn from Michael Jordan. It probably didn't feel great at the time you were doing that, but when you look back and you look at the championships and you looked at the lessons that you learned and that, yes, winning does have a price, that it kind of probably makes sense now, but maybe not as much back then and certainly wasn't likable. But leaders, great leaders aren't always likable. So, yeah, I think Fred said, you know, leadership definitely has a price, winning has a price. But no, I don't think Michael Jordan regrets any of it. Um, this is somebody who has really marched to their own beat for a very long time. Um, you know, he's you know in a time here with 
Black Lives Matter and whatnot, he is the only African-American owner amongst 150 um, major pro sports teams. You know, he, this is a guy who is, is, has this marched to a, a beat that is incredible. The only, I didn't know that. I believe I'm right in that. There's, there's, if you include MLS, MLB, NBA, NFL, and the NHL, uh, I think there's 150 teams, and he is the only African-American majority principal owner. Wow. More impact in, in more ways than we ever realized, right? Especially um, as a player, and more than just as a player. So um, I know, Malcolm, uh, we're wrapping here, but I was just because you didn't hear our conversation earlier when we talked so much about Jerry Krause. Do you think he was a genius GM? I think he was a very good GM from a player evaluation standpoint, and he struggled with personal relationships. <laughs> you know, a GM's job, one of their jobs is to make sure you have a good relationship with your best player, um, especially with the best player in the world. Um, and he failed in that regard. Right. Uh, it doesn't mean you can't be a great talent evaluator and it doesn't mean you can't be a great negotiator in trades but it does mean you failed in, in a very critical component maybe i mean maybe maybe that's the key though malcolm maybe you uh you create enough fuel between your best player that he hates you enough to go out and win in spite of you <laughs> maybe that's a template some people need to try maybe i'm not gonna get into that one but maybe all right well any other words before we wrap up this three episode long discussion about these fun 10 hours of TV to watch. I appreciate y'all's time. Fred, I know three times sitting in here with me. Thank you. I loved it. You're like yeah. a, you're a podcaster now. Yeah. Famous. And, and Malcolm, thanks for jumping on to wrap this one up. Fred. Absolutely. Great job as always. Love hearing your perspective. So, so thanks everybody for listening. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts and join us next week for more Hustle and Pro. Bye.